Hi, this is J. David Osborne, the author of By the Time We Leave Here, We'll Be Friends, and Ask Goblin Enthusiast, and you are listening to Booked. Welcome to Books, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. This episode, we're going to be interviewing bizarro author Jeremy Robert Johnson. Jeremy is the author of We Live Inside You, the cult hit Angel Dust Apocalypse, the Stoker-nominated novel Siren Promise with Alan M. Clark, and the End of the World Freakout Extinction Journals. His fiction has been acclaimed by Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk and has appeared in numerous anthologies and magazines. He also runs indie publishing house Swallowdown Press and is hard at work on a host of new books. All right, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us over here on Booked. Yeah, glad to be here. Cool. Um, We spent quite a bit of time talking to J. David Osborne about what Bizarro is. Um, Give us your take on it. Uh, I think Jay kind of nailed it to the wall uh, when he was on, um, just in saying that it's definitely the the genre of the weird. I mean, uh, you know, the the, the weirdness is the defining central trait, and then it kind of spreads out into a really, uh, it's a pretty vast spectrum now as far as what that means. And then trying to get into, I mean, the genre arguments are always so kind of silly and nebulous and stuff, because then you start talking about, Slipstream and New Weird and, you know, there's there's 14 different kind of genres that pop up all the time and they all kind of mean, you know, uh, just, you know, I don't know, I, I just speculative fiction, you know, stuff that has some genre elements and, and uh, all that. But I think one of the other elements that is defining in Bizarro is just um, the kind of uh, uh, pulp work ethic behind it, you know, that... that uh, a lot of people are trying to produce a, a lot of work all at once and um, that it does run such a, a broad spectrum and that the presses work so hard to get, get so much out there. Um, and it also kind of reminds me of like uh, like the Roger Corman era exploitation or the, uh, the Grindhouse era where, um, you know, there's these big hooks to pull you into this really kind of weird stuff. So. You know, that's I, I, whenever I watch documentaries about uh, different sleazy periods in uh, cinema, I always find myself thinking of Bizarro as a as a tangent. <laughs> One of the things I've noticed um, from reading your website, the Swallowdown Press website, and really just kind of peeking around here and there and and, and talking to people who are enthusiastic about Bizarro is that it feels very grassroots, and um, there's a lot of enthusiasm from the people that are that are within kind of the bizarro community to get the word out. And I, I liked that. It seemed like there was just a lot of heavy enthusiasm, I guess, uh, um, to, to get this out to as many people as possible. It's not as much a question as it is just an observation I've made. Yeah, no, it's, uh, um, it's been pretty amazing because, uh, it's been going since maybe, you know, 2006 and I've been a part of other, uh, groups kind of you know uh writers groups or um you know these different things that were going to take the world by storm and and represented you know the new you know literary whatever and uh those things collapsed really fast i mean <laughs> uh, almost instantaneously you know as uh, 
I, I forget, it was called like Riot Lit or Word Riot or something like that. And it was myself, Christopher Young, Brad Liskey that does, you know, Nervous Breakdown and all that now. And um, uh, Carlton Mellick was part of it for a moment. And there was this guy, N. Frank Daniels, and then Dr. Joseph Shuglia. Are you guys aware of, of him? Mm. World's greatest author. No, we, nope. we've missed the world's greatest author, oh, apparently. He's, he's also he's the world's greatest uh, contrarian book reviewer. If you go and look at like <laughs> a, uh, any kind of Amazon, like House of Leaves, he updates his review. Uh, every time he gets off the page, he deletes it and posts a new one. Uh, this one-star kind of scathing book critique um, is a, a really interesting uh, persona. I don't know whether it's a, a real thing or not, but he's a guy that just is um, – one of the most intense you know have you ever uh, read movie reviews by that guy armand white who talks about how michael bay is better than coppola and stuff like that <laughs> yes I, I i'm somewhat familiar with him yeah so so this dr joseph shuglia is the armand white of literature he's he's worth looking up just to see his reviews online they're they're so uh intense and, and kind of scathing and he's he's no fan of bizarro either but although we got, got along when we interacted but that thing lasted i think three weeks even with everybody investing time and money. And then somebody wanted to do a post about OJ Simpson on a blog and, and our entire uh, movement uh, fell apart. So, <laughs> so Bizarro, you know, it, you know, which is now containing hundreds of books and multiple presses and, and uh, you know, and everybody that kind of touches it and gets involved with it uh, stays enthusiastic is a real surprise to me. And I think that's a testament to um, how much it is about creating and not just uh kind of image or manifestos or anything like that it's just it you know it's people making books and and giving a damn about books and and uh you know being excited about it and i, I think that gives a lot of its uh energy so you kind of hinted at it but um how did you personally get involved with uh bizarro or, or what drew you into bizarro in general so basically uh i used to hang out on a, a horror writer's forum called Shocklines. It was also a, at the time a big uh, uh, horror bookstore uh, as far as online stuff that was uh, horror only. And I had posted that I was moving up to Portland and Carlton already lived here and, and suggested we meet over drinks. And then, uh, uh, you know, I was primarily working in, in the horror genre as, as far as short fiction and stuff like that. And then he uh, ended up within the space of the next year publishing Angel Dust Apocalypse or uh, rather Rose O'Keefe had uh, published that and then uh, a year later you know a couple of the collective uh, groups decided to launch bizarro and at that point i uh i jumped on board just because these were all all my friends and uh i liked what they were doing and and uh i i saw my work as kind of uh going multi-genre at that point anyway and i was doing a lot of weird stuff so i thought it was a, a good fit you know who are some of your biggest influences when you when you got to writing oh um Man, I mean, it's one of those things where when I was a kid, it was just all, you know, uh, the paperbacks I could get at the grocery store. And uh, so, you know, I read, I think, King's Cycle of the Werewolf when I was five, Salem's Lot when I was seven. And then uh, just I, I never stopped reading uh, Stephen King books. And then once he told me I had to read Clive Barker, I jumped to that and Robert McCammon and Joe Lansdale and Skip Inspector. And then... Uh, also, I mean, a lot of just, you know, the kind of newsstand pulp stuff, uh, Ludlum and um, Michael Crichton, and that was that was primarily what I had access to in uh, Central Oregon where I grew up. And then when I got off to college, I went into my snobby phase because college bookstore didn't carry any, uh, you know, King, but they had tons of 
you know, they had David Foster Wallace and Irving Welsh and, you know, all the old Burroughs books. And so it was kind of a, when I really started writing was a couple years after that. So it was this kind of weird uh, mash of, of, you know, college bookstore stuff along with growing up on, on pulp paperbacks. So. Did you say you were five when you read Cycle of the Werewolf? Yeah, yeah. I actually I convinced <laughs> my mom to buy it for me. Uh, uh, it was in, in, in a Payless on the uh, stands and I think she kind of knew what it was, but they were, I was a kind of a precocious kid and, and they were trying to encourage me to read. So she got it for me and, and I was freaking out because uh, the, the, one of the goriest uh, paintings in there, uh, I think the all Bernie Wrightson paintings was all these pigs being slaughtered and it happened on my birthday. Um, and I know I didn't find out until years later that that's actually uh, uh, Stephen King's birthday too. And that he uh, inserts his birthday into his stories all the time, which is now it pops me right out. Cause I like, you know, spot it. There's his birthday again. You know, I don't know if he thinks he's being clever or if it's just fun for him. But I mean, it, well, after Dark Power, I mean, he's willing to insert his entire self into this book. So whatever. You know? I've told people that I read um, Different Seasons by Stephen King when I was in it was seventh or eighth grade. And, and usually the response is, well, that kind of explains a lot. But wow, man, <laughs> five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I started and I don't know that I understood all of it. I remember uh, when I was reading it in the fourth grade. Um, and there was like that sewer, <laughs> you know, that 12 year old sewer gangbang that happened partway in. I was like, this is not very realistic to my childhood <laughs> at all. You know, <laughs> scary clowns and giant spiders. That's, you know, closer, but it, that was an odd one. Yeah. That, that was, I read that. I was probably like 18 or 17 and that was odd then, but yeah, it didn't quite. Yeah. But yeah, I see what you're saying. God damn. That's, I can't imagine fourth grade reading it. So. Yeah, it was. Um, it took me a really long time. That's one thing I remember. I mean, it was like it was like my, you know, like Infinite Jest later. It was one of those things that took me months and months to slog through, just because, you know, I was busy with school and riding my bike. Yeah, you were ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. So uh, this is something that I was really fascinated with, and I think Livius too. Um, so in the book, we live inside you. You talk about parasites a lot in your stories, but also kind of in your notes about the stories. Um, yeah. So, yeah, what do you got to say about parasites? This is your open forum to uh, to gross oh, us out. Oh God, no! Don't don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started because I do. Um, I mean, it's it's one of those obsessions. It's like I have a similar obsession with uh, with gray white sharks uh, and with like a societal loss of control. You know, like the the road kind of situations. Um, but parasites, God, it's just one of those things I, I, that I hate the idea of and that I despise so much I've become obsessed with it as a way to try and control it intellectually, you know? <laughs> and, uh, God, like, uh, bot flies, those things. I, I remember uh, looking one up on Snopes and saying, oh, you know, somebody sent me this picture of a bot fly emerging from this kid's eyeball in India. And I was like, oh, I'm Snopesing this. There's no way it's real. And then it turned out, like, every grotesque parasite thing I could find was legit. <laughs> I was just like, no, no, no. Would someone debunk this? This is terrible, you know. So no, I've been uh, completely terrified of parasites since I was really small. I mean, I, I'd say Cronenberg's uh, like Shivers uh, or Rabid that probably started it back in the '80s, and then uh, uh, it just hasn't stopped as far as freaking me out. And they keep finding these new things. And there's that uh, that protozoan that they found in Lake Havasu. Uh, that gets into it crosses the blood brain barrier and melts down the front of the brain. So that one 
is my new uh, phobia because uh, it's getting in people's tap water and then they're using those neti pots to clear oh, their sinuses. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. And they're getting their brains melted. I mean, it's not that common. <laughs> it's total fear-mongering. But at the same time, you know, you think you have the flu and then you go in and they're like, no, sir, you're, uh, your whole frontal cortex is, is uh, liquefied and full of mating protozoans and you're going to die in a day, you know. <laughs> that sucks. That's miserable. And at the behest of your author's notes, I watched 30 seconds of a video, and I have now probably told about 20 people about how disturbing that video was. And it did was you little... uh, go to guinea worms, or which which thing did you look? Uh, it was at? it was the liver or something or another. Liver and flukes are pretty yeah. nasty. It, it was 30 seconds of a video, and there was someone trying like with forceps to like remove one out of something. And I gotta tell you, it's it's with me now. Whatever it is, a week and a half later, I, I think oh, yeah, about you it can't, almost every day. It's ugh. I, I saw uh, there was a uh, morgue photography book I saw that had a, a cross section of a guy's brain, and the liver flukes had somehow accidentally got into his brain, and had formed these cystic calcifications, and he ended up uh, he was in a mental institution for a decade because his whole personality changed and he became violent. No one understood why, and it was because these liver flukes had landed in the wrong spot, eaten a portion of his brain created these little calcified homes for themselves and then died leaving gaps oh, where his, his brain should have been working. So, I mean, yeah, I, and then there's the, uh, the kangaroos, you know, that's the one uh, well, I learned about that from sniper with Billy Zane and Tom Berenger. You guys seen that film? Yes. It's a gem. Anyway, uh, that's the, the fish that swims up your urethra oh, and then spreads right. barbs once it's inside. <laughs> So uh, Jeremy, it, where Jeremy, where can I send the bill for the full body scan I'm getting tomorrow? <laughs> uh, that's 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 what I want to know because those things aren't cheap. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, I hate parasites. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> it's funny that that you write them so well for for being so hate, hateful of them. Well, I think you know, the more you know about them, the more you fear them, and the more obsessed. It, it's a, it's an attempt, you know. Like most fear-based writing, it's an attempt at an exorcism or an attempt to come to an understanding with it. But I just get to the end of it, and I still hate them, <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. See, I get obsessive about things, but I think it's not. Uh, see, like I'll do, I just do dumb stuff. Like I'll, I'll be, I'll have like a an hour or two to kill, and I'll go on Wikipedia and read about ants for like an yeah. hour and a half, just because they're fascinating and read about their their culture and the way that their lives run and everything. But uh, yeah, parasites. I think that. My stomach, but yeah, it's too weak to get into that type of thing, too much. Yeah, I don't, I don't recommend looking any deeper into it online. Because <laughs> what I do is, I mean, my story is I usually just take two to three parasites and then kind of mix them together and then make them slightly worse than they actually are, and that's that's all you have to do mm. for <laughs> body horror. Wow. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and change the subject now. <laughs> We're talking about something a little nicer. Um, we talked a little bit when we uh, when we were talking about We Live Inside You about Symmetrinas, and we were both kind of intrigued by the idea. Can you tell us a little bit about them and what uh, what made you want to do it and what you got out of it? Yeah, the, the Symmetrina is just this really, uh, you know, what seems at first to be this very elaborate, uh, fixed kind of form of for writing prose versus, you know, the haiku is a fixed form of poetry. Uh, this is a way to do prose and, and you know, more traditional storytelling, but within a, a form that's dictated by these these rigorous controls. So um, it's kind of like the, the Dogma 95 of, of writing, you know. And uh, this guy, Bruce Holland Rogers, um, who's a, an amazing author, was kind of talking about this format uh, at a, a writer's conference I was at. 
and I came up to him afterwards. This is at, uh, I think, World Fantasy Convention in uh, Arizona years ago. And I said, hey, I'd, I'd love to write one of those. And, and you mentioned they were collaborative. Uh, would you have any interest? And he said, yeah. And then we actually we didn't talk for about a year. And then and then I got a hold of him by email again and, and said I was uh, still interested. And we, we dove in. And it was it was a lot of fun. But it is uh, once you realize that you have to the whatever story you just told, you have to reduce it to the specific word count that's set up by the uh, by the story structure. That's that's the biggest lesson in editing and um, and just uh, how to use language that I've ever received in my entire life. It makes me think of uh, you know everybody tells that anecdote about uh, when Elroy submitted White Jazz to his editor and he had to chop it down from 950 pages to 350. So he just took out all the verbs and used that forward slash setup, and now he uses that in every single book, you know. Um, it was so informative uh, as far as technique um, for writing that uh, I'd, I'd absolutely recommend it, at least for people to experiment with, you know. And if you're not happy with what, what you produce as a writer out of it, then, then you'll at least have uh, learned something. And there's been, uh, at least with projects Bruce has worked on and uh, some other folks, it's actually semi-viable. I mean, we sold a nine-story Symmetrina to Cemetery Dance, and they were nice enough to run it, even though it took up quite a bit of space. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's absolutely it's it's an interesting intellectual exercise, and uh, the idea of having a theme run through all those stories and having someone else spur you on is is a lot of fun. So, I, I I'm just uh, pretty adamant about uh, just putting it out there for people to try. I think it's great. That was one of the. Um... Um, things that I really liked about different types of flash fiction or micro fiction and stuff like that. Um, and we, we've talked to lots of people that we've had on um, other interviews and stuff who, uh, one of the things that, like you said, um, having such a tight amount of space to write in or, you know, these types of constraints makes it so that you value what you write more and, and you're very, like, hyper thoughtful of what you have to put in to make the story work and everything. Exactly. It's that the economy of language that you learn from it, you know, and then the next time you go into a project, you start to wonder how bloated is this? How much stuff, if I was forced to, could I trim down and still make this the essential, you know, story? And I, I think that's a pretty interesting uh, way to look at it. For sure. For sure. And um, so, I mean, are you a fan of those like shorter types of uh, work as well? I mean, outside of Symmetrina's, like, you know, um, if you had to write micro, I know that there's like specific like drabbles and other types of like really small fiction and stuff. Do you, do you do that type of stuff as well? Um, not, not recently. I mean, uh, I've done, I think when I was younger, I did a lot of flash just because, um, I had ideas, but I didn't have uh, full characters or, or arcs to carry them through. And so I just really wanted to get a concept or an idea out. And, and uh, I think Flash is a really good way to pitch a concept or an idea or a tone mm -hmm. uh, in the absence of a full-fledged you know, uh, story. Although, I mean, some people can do crazy amounts of story in, in very few words. Um, but... No, now I'm trying to figure out the opposite and getting ready to work on a novel and trying to figure out how to how to write big, you know, how to <laughs> how to go uh, how to unflash myself, not not to you know purposefully bloat things, but how to you know try to tell a really a really large story across a, a you know significant amount of uh, words, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> cool. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, how about we talk a little bit about Swallow Down Press? How you got started and. Uh what's going on with Swallowdown? 
that's just kind of my own attempt to uh, to expand the aesthetic of Bizarro, and especially to include stuff that uh, had a kind of darker horror or um, crime fiction edge to it, because that's stuff that I felt was underserved and that there wasn't enough of it in um, Bizarro, but it certainly had its place, you know? Uh, so basically, I just, and I had a couple titles of mine that had already been out in other forms, um, and I wanted to have them out in paperback, so I said, well, I might as well launch a press. All the kids are doing it, so <laughs> so I jumped in, and then, but uh, it turns out once you say you have a press, a lot of people express interest, and then uh, and then all of a sudden you're reading manuscripts all the time and wondering when you're going to read the, the books you actually bought for your personal entertainment, and, uh, and then I've been lucky enough to uh, be able to ask some people to send in work and, and uh, found some some really wonderful stuff that I was excited about putting out and and it's been a I mean my production rate is wildly slow it's so far behind the kind of the pulp standards of Bizarro it's like one or two books a year but um, I'm really proud of the the stuff we've put out there and and uh, I also just think there's a Swallowdown's got kind of it's less of an absurd angle and there's a lot of focus on kind of the the language of it too you know, from more of a, a, you know, quote, literary perspective where the language can be a, a big part of the, the story, too, the way it's told, the the voice, whereas I think sometimes with uh, a lot of Bizarro, what you're getting is more the central concept and, you know, this really, this almost kind of filmic pace and, and sometimes uh, I think Swallowdown goes out, outside of that. Where would you like to see Swallowdown go? What's your vision for the the future of the press? Oh man, I mean, right now with uh, I have a, a 16 month old son, so just to uh, continue to exist long enough to put out the the two books I have contracts for right now. <laughs> so I've got a, a another book from Cody Goodfellow coming coming out uh, within the next month called All Monster Action. That's actually probably the most probably the most absurd kind of fun. Uh, thing we've done it's it's uh four short stories and then a, a series of novellas that are all set in a kind of uh godzilla atmosphere with uh, a scenario where entire cities have become these giant monsters that uh that exist with you know living people on them and you know so las vegas the las vegas strip becomes a monster and <laughs> they all become different kinds of monsters that are kind of you know ironic to the the way you know the city is and stuff and um Anyway, it's it's difficult to uh, synopsize because it's completely fucking nuts. It's a totally crazy book. And then uh, <laughs> and then after that, uh, I've got probably the least surreal, least weird thing uh, we've ever done, which is J. David Osborne's next book, which is just straightforward, uh, kind of relentless, uh, dark crime fiction. So and that's uh, called Low Down Death Right Easy, which I'm super excited for. Uh, both of those titles this year. So. That's yeah. that's about though. That's as far as I can see. I thought you I thought you were gonna say to hand down an empire to your child, you know, <laughs> become one of the big six or yeah. So. I wouldn't I wouldn't force this on my kid. <laughs> what the publishing is a fantastic world, but you if if you don't love it with all your heart, man, it is a it is a grind. So. Where did the name for the press come from? Oh, it was a uh, gosh, just kind of a. I was really into, um, you know, smashing together words and phrases back then. I thought it was pretty stylish. So it was uh, kind of like a metaphor for books as, as being a, 
something that could be transformative. Um, so, you know, you take this in and then your brain is, is changed after that, which is, you know, it's, it's slightly pompous, but it, it also, it just sounded nice. And, and, uh, Alan M. Clark, who's an artist I work with, uh, came up with a really lovely logo and, and we just rolled with it. All right. Going back to, uh, kind of Bizarro in general, what are your hopes for Bizarro? Do you, you want it to be like, uh, I, I, I guess I'm not even going to put words in your mouth. What, what, what do you hope to happen for Bizarro in the upcoming years? Um, it's funny because, uh, within the last couple of years, I've got a sense that it, it, you know, when we first started out, it was like one of those things where, you know, like a kind of propaganda thing where you have to keep saying it. So people, you know, you say it enough times, people will think it's real, like a King of Pop kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we just kept saying Bizarro, Bizarro, Bizarro. And, and it was, you know, of course, you know, there was a lot of, uh, scorn and, and, uh, you know, silliness and stuff, which was, was fine. And, we just kept on trooping, but they, I got this sense over the last couple of years that I don't even have to hope for it anymore. I mean, it's got, it's got a, there's so many people working on it and, uh, it's, it's becoming so much more kind of embraced and, and, uh, understood that it feels like it's just, it's, it's own thing at this point, you know? Um, and I'd certainly, I mean, there's certain, there's certain stigmas that have been attached to Bizarro, whether or not they're, their stigmas from people who actually read the work, uh, or or not, or whether they're just people's initial perspective from the way it's marketed, you know, it has a kind of uh, anti-intellectual stance that I think turns off uh, some readers. Um, the, the people perceive it as being, uh, you know, not run professionally, or it's just another another form of like you know a bunch of bunch of idiots get together on Lulu and pop out a, a batch of books, you know. Um, which you know when it, when I watch behind the scenes, how much work you know all those guys put into it, uh, you know, and how much how much people kind of live it day to day, uh, you know, I certainly hope that that impression shifts over time, and and that uh, you know each of the different presses do their do their thing and become recognized for what they're doing. So, I don't know. I just I think it's uh, just going to continue to expand and and. Uh, and the, the best of the bizarre work is going to rise to the top and kind of define the, the genre and the, and the, well, you know, genre or marketing term, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and then people will say, Oh yeah, I, you know, I, uh, enjoy bizarro openly because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, you know, I, I get sometimes people, uh, uh, want to excise me from bizarro. Like I've, I've seen comments where people say, Oh, you know, uh, don't make the mistake of attaching Jeremy to the bizarro genre. And I'm just kind of like, what the fuck? I've been working really hard to attach myself and, and to, uh, you know, form and, and help the bizarro genre grow. And, you know, uh, uh, again, I think that's just because some of the, the initial stigmas that are attached to it. And as that drifts away, um, you know, and, and people recognize that how many different kinds of crafted stories there are here and, uh, that'll fall to the side and people just dig it. Cool. Um, so the one of the thing that between you and, and Os David Osborne that we, that I'm hearing when we're asking about Bizarro, cause I'm, I'm very new to it is it's not like there's no longer, it, it needs to make it. it it's a, it's here pretty much like it's, it's, it's made it. It's in the scene. Yeah. I mean, I think once for me, when I, the, the day I went to the guardian website and I saw them talking about ask goblins of Auschwitz, <laughs> I was just, I'm a little tiny part of the front of my brain exploded. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a, kind of a coup, you know? Uh, uh, how does this exist? 
So, um, yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting to me that I don't know. It just it just seems to uh, have its its own life now, you know. And and the one thing that that I learned from from talking to J. David Osborne about Bizarro was that um, a I'd read some Bizarro stuff I wasn't aware it was Bizarro like Help a Bear is Eating Me, and then when we moved on to read your collection, um, you know there's some stuff in there that you know that wouldn't have struck me as Bizarro in what is a collection by what could be called a Bizarro author, um, and just some really great stuff. So it's not all ass goblins of Auschwitz. Some of it is you know very serious and not you know tongue-in-cheek which when you, you know you look at carlton mellick's titles you know as, as you scroll through his amazon page you know they, they all are like kind of they come off as one-off jokes to somebody who hasn't read any of it you know and you're talking about you know baby jesus butt plug it doesn't sound like a book that can be very serious so i think that stigma may come from some of that but that there's some very serious work that isn't done at all tongue-in-cheek or meant to be funny or you know yeah i mean i i, I think uh it just it it goes press by press too. I, I think I think Eraserheads had a big niche in doing those kind of uh, uh, more humor based um, kind of absurdist pieces that have the provocative titles, um, you know. And then with Swallowdown and Lazy Fascist, there's been uh, kind of a, a step away from that where they're still embracing you know um, weirdness, but not to it's just not the same kind of kind of stuff although carl actually he has a, a book called the Eggman that's uh that plays it pretty straight and pretty dark um and i i think his his stuff is a uh, relatively misunderstood a lot of it is wildly over the top and very much based in in humor and absurdism and and um but some of his stuff has some pretty heavy kind of uh undercurrents to it uh that you know he would never talk about that in public because he'd say he sounded like a douchebag but i can say it for him i just think there's a, there's a lot of serious stuff going on in even his his uh what could be perceived as kind of sillier works um and it gives it a certain resonance and i think he also writes a lot of uh romance which uh you know a lot of people won't admit to you know like even even a lot of crime and noir writers are kind of writing romance but you know as long as it's still a femme fatale it's okay because everything ends ugly which to me is kind of like a limp biscuit heavy metal kind of thing like there's a lot of that in heavy metal too which is uh you know maybe makes me think that the femme fatale things on the on the way out to some degree you know being angry about women all the time <laughs> that's a, a noir thing that i always get i get ready for it i brace for it I'm 100% guilty of it myself, but it's always interesting seeing when it's uh, when it's flipped to some degree, you know, when it's when it's changed up. I think that's one thing James Elroy does amazingly is is writes these strong female characters into the, uh, you know, his uh, crime fiction, and uh, it's just kind of a, a breath of fresh air to not have it all be uh, just you know kind of lascivious, dangerous women dragging men into bad crime plots. All right, but uh, yeah, so. Michael Hansen is. Uh, I mean, his stuff is uh, uh, fantastic. But he's definitely he's on the the humorous end of things too. He's did, he's done uh, you know, Help a Bear is Eating Me, and then Rampaging Fuckers, and both of those are are primarily humor based. And then he has one that's a really dark satire called a Cannibal's Guide to Ethical Eating. Um, that's just proposing you know that the, all we really can do with the the one percent is to consume them. You know that's the only reasonable option, and it's this guy's basically this guy's treatise that he delivers on a on a sinking cruise ship where they're dining on rich people about why that's the only ethical option. Um, and and uh, 
yeah, Michael's got some wonderful stuff. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes the Bizarro tag is just on there because, uh, I mean, We Live Inside You, I would say, is about maybe 20% what I consider Bizarro fiction. But I've, I'm so heavily associated with, um, you know, the genre itself, and I'm, I'm proud there's Bizarro fiction in there. And, but there's definitely, I mean, there's some stuff that I would classify as just straightforward horror fiction or literary fiction. Um, absolutely. I mean, so, so I get that when people are, you know, surprised. Also, it made me think I need to change the story order because I need to put a serious story towards the beginning of the book. <laughs> people get to when Susser stirs and they're just uh, grossed out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's the, one of the sample chapters that's available on Kindle. So, like, I realized I probably should have put a different one in there. <laughs> For people who are expecting all that, you know, they, they, if they go in thinking it's all going to be exploding dicks, they're uh, in for a surprise, you know. Grossed out in a good way, though. I mean, it was delivered well. And I mean, I think that any story that kind of makes you have any kind of emotion or, or you know, physical reaction in some cases is uh, is good. I mean, you delivered what you set out to do. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, my intent with that one was just to keep typing. <laughs> and I <laughs> to myself, holy shit. I'm really writing this one. Okay, here we go. So, uh, yeah, that's it's really gross. <laughs> yeah, that's well. probably the grossest thing I have ever written and will ever write in my entire life. <laughs> um, I was living in an attic uh, uh, that summer in Portland, and it had a. It was one of those ones where it was su- it was a super old house, and it was a, a super hot summer. And even with three industrial-sized fans blowing through, you could smell, I mean, the sap was coming out of the wood. You could smell the wood mm-hmm. warming up like a sauna. And I remember just riding that up in that in that pressure cooker attic at, like, 3 in the morning, just kind of laughing to myself. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I just thought of while you were talking about the, the femme fatale and all that... Um, was was something that come that had come up uh, when we were talking about Warmed and Bound with the authors we're interviewing, and is just something that I think about, I guess with genres in general. And it is um, are there uh, any women writers in Bizarro or any you know, uh, yeah, I guess are there any women writers in Bizarro? Yeah, I mean, there's been uh, a few. I would say it's been it's been predominantly uh, male, you know, like heavy metal and. Um, there's a uh, uh, there's a writer Gina Rinaldi who did uh, some some of the kind of early works uh, in Bizarro Suicide Girls in the Afterlife that's in the first Bizarro starter kit and um, Wall of Kiss about a woman that falls in love with a wall and her uh, stuff was kind of darker and serious but she's kind of separated herself from Bizarro now and is working on a lot of uh, horror small press stuff and then uh, there's a, a lady now that's writing called Athena Villaverde who's doing a kind of series of almost anime or fantasy inspired stories about these different girls. There's clockwork girl and starfish girl and they're these, uh, adventures. And then, Oh, there's a new one in the new bizarro author series by Constance Fitzgerald, uh, called Trashland at Go-Go about kind of a, uh, well, the, the snippet I've heard of it was about a stripper named Coco, uh, who meets, uh, a witch who lives in a shack made out of meat. That's, that's what I know about <laughs> it so far. Cause I've had a chance to read it, but, um, yeah, it, it's been a predominantly uh, male thing so far, but I think as it expands, it'll be nice to, to get some different, you know, uh, female voices in there, too. Cool. Now, speaking of authors, who are you currently reading? Uh, or who's I'm on reading, your reading list? 
perhaps is a better right one. now i'm reading uh donald ray pollock devil all the time mm. which is pretty wonderful and then uh i just finished uh jack ketchum's offspring because i finally got the woman which is uh kind of the follow-up to that and um oh what else I have a stack of five or six different books that I've started uh, that I dove into and then I haven't uh, had a chance to go further in because I'm uh, also working really hard to finish up Cody Goodfellow's next book. So um, I think Devil All the Time is the next one to finish. And then I've got two stories left in Craig Davidson's Sarah Court, which is outstanding. Um, and gosh, I don't know. I, I've got three different to be read stacks now which is starting to freak me out a little bit <laughs> and i made the mistake of going to pals two weeks ago which always creates it's like an entire new stack i i always warn people when we go to pals don't take in more than two hundred dollars mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to set a limit <laughs> when you go in because they have everything so uh writing wise is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to talk about uh yeah i mean um the the thing i've been doing for the last month or so is just trying to get people to realize I didn't die uh, five years ago, um, which has been a pretty significant piece of work, uh, I just because I drifted off for so long after the first collection. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of just kind of getting review copies out and all that. And then uh, after I finish up Cody Goodfellow's book, I'm diving in on finally my first novel, uh, which is called Tuning Fork. It's a end of the world uh, kind of post-apocalyptic story. Um, has uh, I mean, it just it has such a broad series of elements that to kind of list them off makes it sound more absurd than it is. But it's a uh, kind of a cross-country, post-apocalyptic road trip. With uh, it's got parasites. It's got an assassin who uses echolocation. Um, it's got crazy uh, aspects of physics and cultural anthropology. It's it's just I mean. Uh, I know that all sounds really pompous, but it's it's a crazy book, and I'm super excited to get going on it. So, uh, yeah, that's the next big thing. And then I have a a, a novella um, that's a kind of a weird crime thing called Skullcrack City uh, that I've been kind of getting ready to write forever, and uh, I've got my playlist ready for it. And I'm probably doing that in the interim while I'm trying to send uh, Tuning Fork around to different presses. So. On that playlist, just out of curiosity. Oh, uh, that's it. Well, it's a like a kind of a, I, I set up different playlists for short stories and for um, you know novellas where I want it to meet a certain mood and kind of inspire it or whatever. And this is all um, a lot of kind of like a Portishead. I think puts me in the mood for kind of you know crime fiction and noir, and then um, a lot of uh, like a LP hip hop stuff. Um, gosh, can't think of what else. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty odd mix. It's all stuff that has a a relatively kind of a, a somber tone, just so I I kind of stay in the, in that mode, you know. Because with all the elements of kind of absurd stuff I'm throwing in there, I don't want it to turn into something overly goofy. And and sometimes the music helps me reorient at you know three in the morning when you're in a fugue state, falling asleep <laughs> at your laptop. It just it, it brings you back on track. See, that's interesting because I would I would have thought, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people go the other way is that you would listen to music that reflects the mood of the story you're writing. But to rein yourself in with it is kind of an interesting uh, it's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Well, yeah, I mean, I just I realized that when I was writing this novella called Extinction Journals, how much of a difference it makes, because I had uh, 
uh, a really aggressive uh, kind of drum and bass album on, and then it would switch over to uh, Bjork's Vespertine, which is this really delicate, you know, it's Bjork, whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's super delicate, odd album. And you can actually, I, well, at least, you know, it would be difficult to see, but I can see a, an almost perpetual shift in tone throughout between the, the, the kind of lighter elements and the, the heavy elements. And I just, I realized that it's not something to uh, mess around with. I've been doing it ever since I went to see Irving Welsh read at Powell's a long time ago. And he talked about one of the ways he stays in character because he has, you know, in each different book, he has, you know, four or five different uh, voices he's narrating with, you know, all the different kind of characters that run into each other and they have very distinct dialects and, and things. And he said he creates a specific playlist for each character to stay in their voice. And he said he will even, you know, put himself through listening to, you know, hours and hours of music he can't stand, just terrible music if the character he's writing happens to be a total douchebag, you know, <laughs> uh, because it kept him centered and kept him from floating into any of those other voices, you know, and he's trying to juggle all those characters. So I thought that was a pretty intriguing idea. And, and you know, because I used to just put on whatever, I'd press shuffle and, and there you go. But now I try to try to control it. Uh, with the music more wow very interesting insight there is there anything else you'd like to plug uh before we wrap this up man no i mean uh uh we live inside you is out it's uh people are starting to find out i have a new book out which is fantastic and uh i really hope people check that out and then uh within the next month cody goodfellow's all monster action is dropping and then uh, contractually, James David has to have "Low Down, Death Ride Easy" to me by October, uh, so we can get it out just in time to make people suicidally depressed for the holidays. So, <laughs> I'm really excited about that. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the the roster for this year, and and uh, that's about it. And then in uh, November, there's BizarroCon, which is uh, the Bizarro Convention. And uh, I would absolutely recommend that people, if they have any interest in Bizarro, come out to that because it's a fantastic event and and uh, gets a you know a lot of writers there. And it's primarily kind of a, a writers' convention, and there's a lot of focus on the craft and uh, a lot of uh, just fun stuff too. Uh, and that's here near Portland, Oregon. So that's kind of a plug for a con, you know. <laughs> that's cool. I'm sure that I'll try and get Livius to uh, to pony up some money for plane tickets to go to that. <laughs> Well, I mean, for himself, obviously. I'll, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a freeloader or anything. <laughs> okay, uh, where can people find more about you or Swallowdown Press online? Oh, um, I mean, they can go to my hyper-archaic uh, 1996 horror website uh, that I designed on WordPad, <laughs> HTML, uh, if you'd like to. That's jeremyrobertjohnson.com or swallowdownpress.com. Both of them will take you straight there. Or... Um, you know, you can just go to Amazon and type in Swallowdown Press. That'll bring up our entire uh, roster of uh, titles. So that's probably the, the best avenues. And then Facebook, uh, just myself personally, I'm, I'm on there. I finally inserted my middle name because uh, I was getting hassled by some other Jeremy Johnsons. So I am on there as Jeremy Robert Johnson. And he accepts friends requests quite quickly, actually. I think it was like 15 minutes between when I... Almost desperately, right? Yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> just so over eager just to have another friend well i figured it was like finally rob from booked is uh is trying to be my friend on facebook no i'm i'm on there i'm on there uh pretty frequently and i try to try to communicate with people as as fast as i can so yeah that's another good venue jeremy thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us here at book this evening yeah thanks
Okay, yeah, once again, very big thanks to Jeremy Robert Johnson for coming on and, uh, and talking to us about Bizarro and his, uh, his book, We, we Live Inside You. Really glad we got to talk to him. Uh, if you want to check out more from him, you can go to jeremyrobertjohnson.com or swallowdownpress.com. Yeah, and don't forget, pick up a copy of We Live Inside You. Um, if you haven't checked out the review for that, go back and listen to it. It's definitely a very, very worthwhile read. Absolutely. And also, um, if you're going back to check out other episodes, don't forget to check out, if you haven't yet, our Intro to Bizarro episode. J. David Zodsborn had some really cool things to say about Bizarro in general and some really great recommendations for some good reads. Yeah, I've got to tell you, from talking to those two guys, it looks like I've uh, my, my book's uh, list to read has gotten longer and longer. So For sure. Cool. Well, that wraps up another interview episode of Booked. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Why, 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 why,